it's super interesting in terms of education um, because both my children are in high school and they are getting pretty much the same education I got 30 years ago. And I felt it was reasonably irrelevant then. And they sort of do seriously question it, but I kind of love that they question it. Welcome to the Future Podcast. I'm your producer, Greg Gunn, and I'm very excited for you to listen to this episode. It's about design, but it's a bit different than what you might expect from us. Today's guest is the founder of an architecture and urban design firm. The project she works on today, you may get to see 10 years from now, which means she spends a lot of time thinking about the future and how to design for it. In this episode, she and Chris discuss what that future might look like for everyone and how urban designers and educators play an integral role in shaping it. I really enjoyed listening to this one because it felt like this warm light bulb in the darkness of a new reality we've all been thrown into. And I think you might like it too. So please enjoy our conversation with Hannah Corlett. For people who are are tuning in who have no idea who you are and want to learn about you, can you introduce yourself and tell us what it is that you do? I certainly can. Um, my name is Hannah Corlett. Um, my company is HNNA. We, um, we're a studio that combines architecture with urban design. Um, and we also combine um, sort of research and theory with practice. So we have a kind of big theoretical edge as well as a lot of, you know, real scale built work. Um, and we kind of feed them off each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we, there's a, I mean, the London scene is such that there's um, a lot of architecture firms but there's not that many who do urban design and those that do are quite big scale so we're the kind of um alternative option shall we say in that we kind of question question what everyone else is doing try and think outside the box um and um yeah okay should we say edgier than the norm i like to think (laughs) but as maybe everyone thinks that about themselves i don't know well they like to think that but maybe it's not real so I think a lot of people, maybe most everybody that's listening to this, can understand what architecture is. You you live in something, you go to something, but the part that is maybe a little bit more mysterious to me is like, what is urban design? Yeah, it's um, if you imagine the the idea of a city, I mean, they don't necessarily organically grow. A lot do, but there's a degree to which people have to make really key decisions at all sorts of scales. And that might be um, the scale of your house. It might be the scale of your streets. It might be the scale of the little small town or village that you live in. It might actually be on a city-wide scale. Um, But they're all design decisions, like exactly how, you know, how buildings integrate, you know, what materials you use, how streets are laid out, who decides where is pedestrianised, the whole sort of... um, grain of it I mean if you think about the Romans and their big long roads and the effect that that's had on some cities and then the kind of medieval very organic streets where you get kind of wonderfully lost in um, you know almost maze-like conurbations it's all because somebody had a a vision about how things should be set out so the urban design is the sort of stage before that sets the framework for architecture to sort of pop in like pieces of a jigsaw. In cities that are already established 
Is it about redevelopment or how do you apply what you do to cities that are already established? Well, if you're in a situation where um, cities change, like, Mm -hmm. for example, you know, most cities start off with a kind of industrial base, but then they become um, added into and that industry actually ends up emigrating, say, in the case of London, the Thames is no longer used as this kind of, you know, spinal um, piece of infrastructure is actually, you know, pretty thing to look at. Um, So the edges of the Thames have changed completely from a working location to, you know, a place that people want to live. Now, as you decide on the built work and the framework around that, obviously the functions of that space change. So someone has to decide, you know, what's important to retain because it's important to the history of London, what grains actually no longer work because it was about getting shipments off boats and into streets um, and is now about people wanting as best a view as possible of the Thames. So it's very much about morphing as Mm. often technology, transportation, basically the way we live changes. We have to make sure that we preserve often the essence of what's great about a city whilst adapting it so it works well still. So in that example that you talked about the Thames, from a a place where people work to now where people might want to live, uh, how does somebody, is it big governments and municipalities that then hire your firm to reimagine and redesign how this, how people are going to interact with this, uh, with the Thames? Well, interestingly, we're working on a project at the moment um, on what's called Greenwich Peninsula. And it's, if you if you look at the um, sort of map of the Thames, it's almost like the the finger that sort of protrudes out um, on what would be the right hand side, um, and it's been it had an industrial life for mm-hmm. a you know long period, and it's all but it's actually quite well, quite well paced. It's just opposite Canary Wharf. It's really well connected, um, but it's been a no man's land for various different reasons. And um, in that case, a client who um, isn't a government body, but is a developer, Mm -hmm. has decided that they would like to take it on as a a big sort of project. And they employed us with um, another large architect to look at the whole master plan um, of that. And then we worked on that for several years. And then HNNA were employed to do um, a sort of city block part of it, which is now like the heart called the design district. Um, and again, we work with the councils for that. You know, it's very important to them that we, um, we provide jobs, for example, that we provide affordable housing, that we work in the requirements that they have for the um, community in their borough. But actually, the developer is the one who's proposing the designs because it's a blank canvas in many respects. Um, so there's, you know, you're not dealing, you're dealing with some existing structures, but not many because they're been redundant because they're industrial for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So in the case of the project that you're talking about, uh, the developer purchased the land and then they work with you and whoever they you guys partner up with to kind of figure out how better to use this. And there's all kinds of requirements. So in a, in a so then do they then need to make sure that 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 the city and the, the residents of the adjacent communities all get behind this? Is that the, the balancing act that you have to kind of walk? Yeah, you do need to do, I mean, as well as working with the um, government, we do public consultations. So it's mm. important that we um, present the work, but also are available to have conversations with the people who, you know, have you know concerns or queries or are really just interested in moving into the area or live adjacent to it. So we do do that because it, it can be a difficult 
thing to do in theory. So often it's better to, to kind of put a proposal down and talk right. over proposal. So people aren't sort of trying to imagine what it is your your words mean on paper. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to relate this to something that I've seen. And I, I live kind of in the suburbs. So the, the bigger city urban planning, I'm not kind of witnessing firsthand on a day to day basis. But I remember a few years back, uh, there's a, a popular strip, uh, an outdoor mall, uh, Third Street Promenade, and they hired architects to kind of reimagine the mall and how people move from the beach to the mall and mm -hmm. to the anchor. And there was a lot of discussion. I, and you could hear about uh, city council meetings, because city of Santa Monica is very strict about what they allow you to do. Many years later, they built this thing. And I think it was an interesting idea that if from the top, the bird's eye view, it kind of looks and feels like a surfboard. So I think there was some kind of idea there. Mm -hmm. But the actual implementation of it and how people are using it, it it's like they missed the mark somehow. Yeah. Like nobody's going to the mall anymore these days. So what are some of the challenges that you have in, in dealing with all the different interested parties so that you can do something that you know is good for the environment and for the people in the communities and still get it through? Because I think that's that's got to be one of the biggest challenges. It is a big challenge. But I think, I mean, that example, I think is a really good one because, you know, you've got a piece of paper and you've got a mm -hmm. plan and you're sort of sketching away. And who the hell is going to see the surfboard unless they're in a helicopter? Right. Um, but understanding like what works in a city by walking around a city and using a city, but also um, the interesting thing about urban design, which you don't necessarily get with architecture. Architecture, you sort of do your designs and maybe within a sort of three, four year period, they get built. With urban design, you're designing for sort of 10, 15, 20 years ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough to understand what it's doing now, how it's working now, but also sort of seeing the way we change um, in uh, family setups, in the way that we transportation's moving forward, in the way that um, you know, in the way that we work. I mean, look now. I think we can all say that we're probably going to be even more reliant on digital interfacing than we are on physical interfacing. What does that mean for our streets? What does that mean for our public spaces? All of that um, anticipation you have to propose um, for a, a time that, in in effect, you're you know, you never experienced. It can't be for now. You have to project it forward. Mm. Um, and the problem with a lot of legislation and a lot of um, councils is that they judge everything by by now. So they know what they like. And if it's a bit similar to that, or if it's, you know, um, not offensive, should we say, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it can be let through. But it doesn't mean it works. It doesn't mean it's clever. It doesn't mean, in fact, it's going to improve people's lives. So a lot of it is actually not being dictated to by what is a safe thing to do, but actually proposing something slightly out there, but having really strong arguments and really, you know, intelligent consultants when it comes to traffic engineers or um, environmental engineers who can put such a strong case that's really bloody hard to argue with. So um, that's the approach we take. I mean, it's not a case of, oh, we know that got through, so we'll copy it and make it pink. I mean, God forbid. <laughs> Okay, so this is like, this. it got really interesting for me. You were talking about the things that you do today, you, you might see in 10 years. So you have to be a futurist, you have to be able to yeah. look at where things are going. Okay, and, and then you also mentioned about what's happening with this global pandemic. So I think the two ideas can merge together. So I mm. wanted to ask you this question. Uh, 
I think if if nothing else, because of the destruction of natural habitats and how global we are in terms of moving around, uh, we're just in, I think, potentially a series of viruses and diseases spreading throughout the world. So how do you uh, then take that information and plan for that where we we still need the to be around other people and physical space mm. and not be trapped at home. But Definitely. what do you see happening 10, 15, 20 years from now if you were to implement a plan today? I think there's lots of things we can learn from this this current situation. I mean, I'm very fortunate that I have a garden, um, but it puts me in a, um, an advantageous position with regards to, I mean, currently in London, if you're gathering in large groups or even if you have had friends who've stopped on park benches and been asked to move on, um, that is that means that we're not designing our affordable housing the right way because it often doesn't have outside space that you know families can use, and that um, all the parks and um, you know public areas where people can exercise um, are actually busier than ever right now, and more people are cycling. Um, but we actually so the, the shared space that is open to everyone and isn't about how much you can afford to buy in terms of gardens or, or flat sizes that has to be really valued now because I think it's come into its own but also people are starting to appreciate it um, and use it in ways that they should have been doing for a long time and we're probably all becoming healthier let's be honest as a consequence of it I mean not just because the bars are closing but you know <laughs> there's lots of reasons yeah. but I feel there's a there's a lot of things I mean I don't know about you but I spend my days on meetings um at, in an interface and that ordinarily I'm, I'm busy traveling around London and I don't drive I've never driven I've never even had a driving lesson very anti-cars so basically everything I do tries to edge out the cars but um hopefully people are realizing that we don't need to move around the city mm. as much so if you actually take the footprint of roads and think well maybe we could arguably get less of them or they could be shared surfaces because they're not used all the time and therefore they become areas where when I was a child we used to play in the streets and that never happens now if we rethink our common spaces so not necessarily our flats and having our flats rethought is obviously something we need to do if we're confined to them for months on end but as from a public realm point of view so our shared space because it's quite an equaliser. I mean, anyone walking around the pavement has the same experience regardless of their socioeconomic background. I think it's really important that we start to value that and we really start to make it work, not just for sort of vehicles and and, um, and the like, but actually value it as, as really usable space that gives quality to our lives. Mm -hmm. I guess uh, one one of the side benefits, or actually there are a couple in terms of this pandemic, and it's hard to kind of find those in with all the gloomy news that you read uh, and see every single day, is that less people on the road, less pollution. Mm -hmm. We we see some images of, of animals returning uh, back from nature, like turtles on the beach, uh, monkeys in Thailand, just like, where are all the humans? Like, what has happened here? And bears in parks. Okay, so there's that part there's less people moving about so it's like the return of neighborhoods like where i live kind of in the suburbs i'm seeing a lot of my neighbors these days we're kind of all yeah. kind of re-evaluating like now we're not means. allowed to touch right <laughs> six feet away but you know i, I see them and yeah. and i see them moving around the neighborhood it's kind of actually really nice that we've had to slow down to take a look at how we can uh telecommute video conferencing like i'm talking to you across 
thousands of miles and it, it's we're going to make it work. And yeah. is there a physical equivalent to that? I mean, you talked about recapturing roads and using that. You talked about public spaces that should be available to everyone, despite whatever socioeconomic ladder you, you are part of. How, how else might like, okay, let me just ask you a really boring question. How might a mall be rethought in the future? Are they even necessary then? We have to be aware that like socially, we have kind of culturally, we've kind of moved in different directions. Like a lot of people don't shop because they need the stuff. They shop because they want to socialize. They want to um, kind of experience the kind of promenade that, you know, Victorians used to do. There's lots of reasons where um, we do things for reasons that aren't always just the commercial reality of the thing. And so I think taking things down to their, you know, basics means that we can still give that quality of space, but maybe we can give it without having to drive to the mall. Maybe there's a way of introducing some of the qualities back to a high street, for example, that more um, people can access by foot and can become, you know, have have a, a crossover life. I think the idea that we become quite car dependent and um, sort of put everything collated and it's no longer mixed up in the way that we right. are now all using our local shops because we can mm-hmm. walk to them because we can't get you know our internet deliveries we're actually seeing our neighbors because we're home during daylight and i think it is re-introdu- reintroducing this idea of community and i for one i mean there's this odd profile whereby the center of cities are, are offices and they aren't used except during the day and all the houses and residential areas aren't used except at night so we have massive redundancy for different parts of the town for 12 hours or so a day because we're switching from one to the other and in in the in that setup it you know we've also got a housing crisis and people small businesses are really suffering because they're having to pay huge amounts for commercial rates and people are going a little bit mad because they're spending the entire time commuting now we can rethink it and therefore people should leave their house not because they have to but actually because they want to and mm-hmm. so things like the mall maybe has you know the the idea that it become something enjoyable we should build on that what other things are enjoyable and we should make those much more accessible to people and we should use our space differently and not have this thing whereby we're constantly commuting from a which might be the city center to b which might be our residential just think we need to mix it up a bit more and make it so that people have access to different facilities, but they realize that they don't have to use them almost religiously between the sort of, you know, Dolly Parton nine to five. Um, and then you have this other life that you can take on um, that's, you know, your free time. Um, because I think spatially, it's really starting to question what we're doing and why we're doing it, which is great. I mean, God, I've been wanting this for ages. So it's good. I think we can be much more efficient and we can actually aim aim for quality rather than, you know, the kind of base level of keeping up with the Joneses or doing what we think we should do because for generations that's what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. Do you think what's happening right now in the last month and a half, two months is going to help change perception and resistance to some of the ideas that you're talking about? I know a lot of people are saying they don't want to go back. Right. I don't know if you're hearing the same thing. But, you know, people who, parents who are actually, you know, kind of sharing the kids more, mm-hmm. um, rather than being in a kind of 
you know almost relay race of passing the baton right. <laughs> um they're actually enjoying it and i think actually enjoying spending time with each other because part of that baton passing is that you don't see each other um and i think people are actually finding that not commuting means they're much more efficient and that they can go to more meetings because they don't have to travel between them they literally turn one off and turn another one on um so i think a lot of people will start to question it are you are, are you optimistic or pessimistic about how we're going to respond because there's been a mix of reactions from uh, at least here in america where people are marching with guns and banners saying no we're, we want life to return to normal and right. i always feel like we we just as humans, we kind of struggle to kind of be present to the moment of what's going on instead mm. of embracing that we're having new challenges with how do I deal with the kids for, you know, 24 hours yeah. a day uh, versus just like rushing back to like whatever normal is. I, mm -hmm. I think there's an opportunity here to re-examine how we work, how productive we have to be and what family life might mean. So are you are you optimistic or pessimistic about how the world might respond to this? I think the issue about routine is that it makes us quite robotic. And through that um, monotony, we, 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 step, we don't get to step out of our situation and question what we're doing. Now, for a lot of people, um, this is a disastrous time. You know, there are some people from an employment point of view, from a health point of view, from just, a, you know, being entirely reliant on seeing their family and you know physically interacting with their family are, are islanded and stranded in a very difficult situation so for that reason obviously I think it's really everyone's looking forward to the end of this but having stepped out of our sort of running tracks we should take this opportunity before stepping straight back into them to see if we couldn't live the life we had before a little bit better and I'm optimistic that it probably, it depends. I think if it's quite short-lived, we can very easily snap back. Um, but I think if it continues um, for, say, another month or so, I think there'll be enough duration that people reset their timescales, their thought process, their routines to actually try and readjust um, when they go back to not snapping straight back. And that's what I hope for, because I don't, I think there are lessons to be learned, not least, you know, the environment um, is is thriving whilst we, you know, are on, you know, grounded, as it were, at home. Um, we, I had um, results that they said that even, even in this condition with us, you know, reduced, we're still not meeting the climate demands we need to stop global warming. So we're being optimistic whilst not changing the way we live. Now, I think this pessimism, which has sort of changed the way we live because of the reality that as humans, we're, we're not, you know, we're not infallible. Um, hopefully, we will actually start to respect other species on this planet as well mm -hmm. as our, ourselves um, and as potentially look after ourselves and our own health um, just as we look after the health of the planet. Mm -hmm. I, I just sidestepping here in terms of like the projects that you're working on, because I was looking up your your social media accounts and projects that you're working on. How has this shutdown, self-quarantine impacted the construction of the projects that you're working on? Like, How are you guys adapting or dealing with this? Um, most of the construction um, that's on site has actually paused. But in most cases, um, 
people have found a way. For example, we're working on the design district at the moment, mm-hmm. and there's 16 buildings all being constructed in actually quite a really tight time scale. Um, and by eight different architects and um, HNNA are there, as well as being the urban designers, we are doing two of the buildings and we coordinate the seven other architects. Um, and it's been it's been in a really exciting period and a lot of the buildings, their structure's up and they were just about to get their cladding. And so to be um, paused on site, you know, seemed quite dramatic. But at the same time, um, the spaces are getting tenants and those tenants um, uh, have sort of fit out requirements so if you take the building if you actually sort of furnish it and um, make it suitable for whoever the users are that was due to start um, about now anyway so that work is going on and I think what will happen which would be great is that rather than having a lag we'll just jump straight through um, having the, the furnishing going on as soon as the um, the buildings are complete. Um, and I don't think we'll see an end date having a significant jump back, which is mm. which is good. But it also, um, one of the things we've had is that the, the design was done specifically for startups. So when we um, were working on the master plan and um, HNNA were doing the, um, the sort of ideas for this unusual kind of variety of workspaces, um, that would be, you know, a, a very varied offer to a lot of different users. We knew that we could, we wouldn't know who those users are because startups, it you can't sort of market to them two three years ahead of time because they won't be startups in two three years. Right. So we actually knew that we had to, all, all, you know, sort of um, imagine forward and engage with who the users were, and we did that by offering, you know, very kind of mixed spaces, not only building to building, um, and they're they're all different forms and materials in terms of their um, outsides and their insides, but they also have very different spaces within them. So across floor to floor, there's a lot of variety, mm-hmm. and the people have seen those in the form of the shells of the building that are up there. And they've actually been able to walk around them. And so they've been able to excitedly say, we'd love to take that space. So we wouldn't have been able to sort of commission the fit out without the users. So in some ways, this the need to get the buildings up and running to get the users and then the users to say what they want and then fit out the buildings um, was an elongated process. And this we're using this downtime to really catch up in terms of that design. So I think for a lot of people, it's really problematic. But I think for the design district, in some ways, we're using it, um, the, the time to its best advantage. Mm-hmm. So contractors and supplies, are, that's still happening? People are still able to go on the site and do stuff? They're not. We're not allowed They're to not. go on site. All our meetings okay. with the contractors and the subcontractors and looking at drawings and marking up drawings, they're all done digitally mm-hmm. um, and remotely. Um, and um, with regards to you know physically implementing anything on the sites, they've literally closed. But I think, I mean, I don't know what, how necessarily is affected in the States, but I would say over half the majority of um, construction sites have done that because they just weren't able to guarantee people's safety. Um, and um, I've heard from other practitioners that their their sites are starting to um, to organise themselves sort of to start again. Um, so it, it's looking like now um, things are, are sort of getting back on track. Um, but there's a lot. Interestingly, I teach at um, at the uh, 
at the Bartlett, which is the mm -hmm. School of Architecture for University College London. And we have an awful lot of international students. And all of our teaching's gone online. I've been giving lectures online. We've um, even did some you know, workshops. We did our presentations, final module presentations, all online. Um, and well, one of the great things about that was that we, we knew that there were incredible sort of international critics who had been housebound. So we just contacted them all up and said, look, you know, would you be free <laughs> between, um, you know, nine o'clock and, and, and 1 p.m. to be a critic for our students? And we would never have got someone, you know, to be flown over from the States or, you know, even from France. But we were able to remotely get, you know, a plethora mm. of amazing critics. And the students are like, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, and they've actually been great about uh, um, sort of switching to, uh, using digital interfaces to sort of interact with me and you know I've probably been overdoing it to make sure that they sort of feel that they're, they're reassured that it's business as usual um, but you know they're going to see their families which a lot of them haven't done um, so there's there's advantages and disadvantages but I think most most people are really innovating how to make sure that they make the best of the situation and they ensure that um, you know when when this period is over that they can start start where they left off um but with potentially ahead of the curve in some respects or just new ways of doing things we're going to take a quick break but we'll be right back hey greg gunn from the future here that's right it's me again now the future's mission is to teach 1 billion creatives how to make money doing what they love without feeling gross about it now, maybe you're in school, but you feel like you're not getting what you need. Or maybe you're like me and sold all of your internal organs to pay for private art school tuition. But you know, it's been a while and you wanna sharpen up some of those skills. Well, fortunately for you, we have a bunch of courses and products designed specifically to help you become a smarter and more versatile creative. Design courses like typography, logo design, and color for creatives go deep into the design fundamentals that you need to know and command in order to be successful. Check out all of our courses and products about learning design by visiting thefuture.com slash design. Welcome back to our conversation with Hannah Corlett. I've taught for a number of years myself uh, in terms of the face-to-face, -face, hands-on, just seeing humans and seeing how they react, their micro-expressions. It's very hard to replicate that online because you're seeing people in the size of a thumbnail and it's mm -hmm. tiny. And mm. it's like, I, I can't tell like uh, what's happening there. So, I, I, and I'm a big proponent for online education. It's how, it's what my business is built on. So. It sounds to me like you've made the best out of a situation and you're able to tap into the brain trust of these people who normally wouldn't be available. This sounds like a tremendous value add. We had talked about how physical spaces and urban planning may be impact or at least how people are thinking about it. But in terms of the education space, since you're an educator yourself, mm. what lessons can you learn from or apply moving forward now that you have this online experience? How might you go back to school and maybe permanently make some changes or not? It's, it's an interesting one because we're evaluating it because we don't, our, our academic year starts in the end of September. Okay. Um, so it, it's not necessarily a gray area, shall we say, but it, we don't yet know if we're able to start again. Right. So we're actually looking at parallel 
um, briefs and how to to you know adjust um, so that we can can offer either way the, the a really strong course. You know, people in the UK pay a lot of money for education now, and I know it's exactly the same in the states. Mm-hmm. And you often get one stab at it, so you need to make it the absolute best offer and the best use of time for the for for the people who are investing heavily in it. Um, and in some respects. You know, I absolutely agree. Like when we do design work, pinning things up on the wall, seeing things physically, being able to compare across drawings, which is very difficult if you're tied to sort of pages on a screen. Um, that's been difficult. I know our students who've been heavily reliant on making digital models um, when in workshops using, you know, expensive digital uh, printing material and laser cutting, etc. I actually had to do a little bit older. I had to do little tutorials of sort of things you could do at home <laughs> to reintroduce them mm-hmm. to sort of physically making with uh, cutting boards and scalpels. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, you know, there are advantages to, um, to, or there are ways that we've overcome things. And I think actually having a closer physical interaction that doesn't involve transportation. For, for those sort of regular catch-ups are definitely maintained so the students don't necessarily have to go a week if they're in trouble and they can just contact me um and i think actually having a, a a sort of brief that looks a little bit more globally so that people don't necessarily need to come to london no sites in london it's been an interesting challenge because you make much more um, global um, comparisons about the same conditions which we actually ask the students to do but we do it with a London-based site because they're international students. And so actually getting that sort of the idea of us having to judge as critics and as, as tutors a for countries that I may have never been to, that they might actually be introducing sites. I find that fascinating. It means I'm actually sort of forced into, you know, much more the the educated rather than the educator role, which is, mm-hmm. is something I love. Um, so, there's yeah, there's different aspects of it in in regards to the positive and negatives but i think a lot of what people get from the university education is not what i teach them but actually the international makeup of people coming to a new city new campus mm, and interacting with each other and making friendships and as someone who has two almost teenage children i think that reliance on the phone or the screen and not physically interacting with people not picking up on the nuances of um, you know, people's, as you say, their body language, etc. I think that's a skill that's important not to lose. Even the thing of public speaking is actually very different if you're doing it in a room full of, you know, 50 people than it is if you're, you know, doing, talking to your own phone. So there are some things that I think, you know, we shouldn't see that we can easily replace. Um, because as as human beings or as people who are adaptive to lots of different situations, sometimes outside our comfort zone, um, it, it's important to ensure that we get that complete kind of crossover. Mm. You you brought up some things that I, you just reminded me of it. Students oftentimes learn more from their classmates than the instructor. And so if we're living apart now, doing or learning online and connecting that way, how might they recreate that experience or can that is can they or is that even possible well i for my tutorials i've been definitely encouraging people to sit in on each other's tutorials so to see other people's work you know if you're talking about urban design you're talking about the way that a city works Mm -hmm. um you actually 
you know, you get somebody from mainland China and you get somebody from the Shetland Islands in Scotland and their approach to sort of urban design is completely different and they can learn a lot from seeing each other as much as they can from me commenting on the specifics of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of sort of Teams or Zoom or whatever the platform may be, that it's not just, you know, one-to-one, it actually does allow that integrated. And it wasn't that long ago when phone calls, you couldn't really do a conference call because technology somehow didn't seem to be up to it. So it's fantastic that um, technology has made that jump. But I think that um, that the sort of collective idea to um, not necessarily being your education that you learn from, but hearing the education of others or even hearing people present their own ideas and getting um, getting knowledge from that uh, is really important. So I've been yeah, I do a lot of, you know, either recording tutorials so that people can look at each other's or inviting people along. It's a little bit difficult with timescales. <laughs> occasionally give people tutorials not realizing it's sort of one in the morning and then <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but that's also the beauty that uh, it's being recorded and broadcasted. So a little bit of, is, of it is time neutral. So the person who's getting the critique needs to be there, I think, so they can interact with you. But other people can watch it whenever their brain is most awake and alive. And if you miss something, right? And this is what I get a lot, which is somebody will listen back to to critique over and over again and they'll hear different things because Mm -hmm. usually the first way you hear something sometimes is defensive, like, oh, God, they just don't understand me. My teacher doesn't really get what I'm doing. But then after that kind of wears away, maybe the second, third time that they they can truly hear what you're trying to say. I think I've actually, even recently when we did our digital quiz, I had that experience because the students were presenting and obviously mm-hmm. they're nervous as hell because you've got right. like celebrity critics. <laughs> we, usually have, we usually have great critics. I pride myself on great critics. But suddenly you've got people that you, you know, only read about on the kind of, you know, books that on the recommended reading list. So um, they 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 were a little bit overawed and some of them became very nervous and they, they, um, they actually sort of sent up, sending me messages saying oh my god I, you know I, I felt like that went terribly you know oh. I was really nervous it was it, I was like you can listen back it was really good <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah the invite the idea of sort of re calming down and looking back at it is really important mm. um I think that uh it's it's funny that you were saying that about sort of that um that exchange as well in and the, the time scales because uh HNNA we did um for a for a long period, we did quite a lot of work in the Middle East, and we did. Um, we actually won the Iraq Parliament. We did uh, uh, economic housing with UN Habitat, and the time difference there was such that they started earlier. So um, I actually had quite young children at the time, so I'd, I would kick off quite early, um, and then finish early when they came home from school because I was matching the day for the people in the Middle East, and they mm-hmm. also had Friday off and Saturday off as their weekend. So I took Friday as my teaching day. So I managed to kind of work through that schedule and for a number of years in a way kept that. Um, and, it, and it worked well, you know, for someone, someone who's sort of juggling children and work. It was actually sort of blessing, slightly mm-hmm. better. Being more in sync with the school hours than the uh, nine to five was good. Mm. Okay, so this is a very personal selfish question for me in that I, I'm hearing you as an entrepreneur, a person who runs her own firm, and also as an educator and as a parent. How are you balancing all this? Because I found 
when I was teaching, it it's all consuming. Like I would give my students everything I had and then I neglected my business. How, how are you managing that? It is difficult. I'm a single mom too. So mm. it kind of adds to the mix. Um, oh my goodness. First, I have great kids. I mean, I, I wouldn't last five minutes with terrible children, I have to mm. say. Um, <laughs> and I, I have actually been both running my practice and teaching for a number of years. Mm-hmm. I think if I was starting out doing all three together, um, that would that would be more difficult. But I'm, um, yeah, I think I'm very efficient in making sure that I do what I do in the time available really productively. Um, but I also almost never have downtime. Like I'm constantly thinking of things. I dream, my dreams consist of, you know, design ideas or sort of solutions for things. Um, so I, I, I mean, yeah, very mentally active such that by the time I get to do something, I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think just the experience of having done it for a long time. I mean, had I think potentially when I started my practice, had children um, and then started teaching all in one go, I probably would have struggled. But I kind mm. of I, I nailed one or the other and then moved on and added to added to the stack, I'd mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Although at any one time you can feel guilty that you're not doing the other two things marvelously. That right. always happens, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Do you get equal fulfillment from doing, uh, from being a teacher and from working on commercial projects? I really like the variety. Mm. I think there's, um, I really love working with um, young people who haven't had the kind of years of commercial um, restraints mm-hmm. holding them back. I really love that. Um, and I really uh, enjoy it not having those constraints myself too so working not for specific clients or specific budgets or you know kind of regulatory authority constraints I think when I do that and then I go back to my practice it makes me question those more so a little bit like you know we were talking about sort of COVID-19 taking Mm -hmm. you out of the situation makes you question how you do things where you do things whether there's ways of doing things better Mm -hmm. I think actually being taken out the box um, in teaching and having that freedom of thought bringing that back into question means that I don't I, I definitely innovate more or become more efficient or actually uh, I'm able to reconsider a, pro- a proposal that, you know, on, on Monday I thought was great, but by the next Monday I've had, you know, my mind has sort of opened up again and, uh, and I've reconsidered it. And I think children are a bit like that because, you you know, they don't see the world like I see the world, and that's fabulous. I mean, being around kind of, you know, people who are just saying, why, why, why is the bl- sky blue and mm-hmm. why is why is my bedtime nine o'clock? And <laughs> that whole thing of questioning it, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, as I say, kind of keeps your brain open. Um, and, you know, it's really nice to see the world out, out of other people's eyes. So I think the three together mm. are a really nice combination. Mm-hmm. I think you were mentioning before that routine can kind of make you robotic. And it sounds like to me that when you're working with your students or, or being around your children, they kind of question your default stance. So sometimes they're right and more often than not, they're wrong. But hey, it's good to have somebody check you on that. And I think that's one of the benefits of teaching. But the other thing that you mentioned that I thought, wow, yeah, I feel the same way is that you become more efficient. Mm-hmm. 
because I think, you know, as creative people, we'll take 30 years to make something if somebody gave us that much time. But then you learn to work within the constraints of time and you, you make decisions faster. But the, the other benefit is you are forced to articulate your thoughts all the time to people who yeah. are so eager to know how you process the world that you yourself become more aware of how you think and you can make decisions faster. Definitely. And I also think if you if you have two other things you really want to do, mm-hmm. nothing kind of forces you into efficiency like that. Mm. Like if you're putting stuff off, you become very lazy and you can kind of expand right. the gas into the void and, you know, you can make making a cup of tea last half an hour. But if you've got loads of stuff you really want to do, whether it's, you know, watching a film with my son or whether it's, you know, getting back to a student who just sent me an amazing draft, but it needs X, Y, Z and then it'll be perfect. Or it's actually getting onto a new project because a client just phoned me yesterday with a cool site. I'll actually just get through it because I want to go on on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And I think enthusiasm is, you know, is a great kind of almost like adrenaline junkie drug, isn't it? It kind of gets you through onto the next thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I I have to ask another question here, and I I probably could ask you a gazillion questions, but I want to make sure I get this in before we run out of time here, which is this, is that seeing how it is that you're, you're planning how people live and work and entertain themselves 10 years, 15, 20 years into the future, you, you must have some kind of crystal ball through research, through empathy, through observation. So normally I would never ask a guest this, but tell it, tell me what the future looks like in 10 years, because there's going to be a lot of creative people listening to this and they mm. may benefit from the insight that you have to share with us. Well, I think, I mean, it's it's kind of topical to now in some respects, but I've got a lot of friends of mine who are in media or who are graphic designers or who are architects. And it's been interesting, I guess the age I am, a lot of those people are like running their own um, businesses. And so they're actually in positions of power to, to rethink. And the work that we're doing for the design district is actually workspaces and offering a lot of variety and the idea of it supporting startups and supporting creatives means it has to be specific to the way that they work and that's you know that can be architectural and can be spatial but I think it can also be about the way that you use space with regards to time like often a lot of what we do as creatives, we can do at our dining room table, but occasionally we need to do, we need to have some larger space or we need some, you know, better technology or, you know, we need specific equipment, Mm -hmm. but we don't need to to pay for an office that has all of those things all of the time. So I think things like the design district where you can go and potentially share desks or highest you know rooms by the hour and as well as potentially having a much shorter lease you know you've got a client who's given you a job for six months and that may mean that you can take the rest of the six months off means you hire space for six months I think the flexibility that you need to be as a creative to have bursts of energy specific needs and that they change over time Mm -hmm. I think that should change the way that we work and the buildings that we work in um, and that means architecturally, but I also think it means in the 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 periods of which we rent space and use space and share space and potentially even share staff. I mean, what's interesting is a lot of people, you know, it, uh, actually as collectives coming together as creatives. I've even seen on Instagram where people are sort of um, posting other creatives they know in terms of advertising them 
or there's art creatives where people are actually selling um, prints and some of their prints, um, if they sell, you know, five prints, they'll buy the print artwork of another artist. I think that idea of sort of supporting ourselves and having a collaborative attitude so that we can be more flexible means that um, I think it will help our creativity. But we're, everyone's struggling. As you said, you know, there's nothing like a creative to spend 10,000 hours for a client who only wants to pay you 10, not because you're being paid 10, but because you want to do something amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that we can't do that because we're not set up to do that or we can't afford to do that is is a problem that a lot of us have. But actually, if we can change the way that we work and if we can somehow support each other and if we're not paying for huge offices or equivalent, we're not having to commit to leases that are five years long, I think that that may help us. Um, Because if you look at what we do in terms of contributing to GDP, the economy needs us, but doesn't support us very well. Right. Um, And I think the sooner we support and appreciate creatives and actually don't realise that, uh, you know, the the needs are very varied, um, then then the better, you know, I think economies will thrive and we'll really see, you know, lives being affected in a really positive way. I mean, some people were, you know, also posting on Instagram, not I'm on Instagram constantly, (laughs) but uh, they they were posting on Instagram saying, um, you know, anyone who says the arts doesn't need funding should question what they're doing in their downtime when they're reading a book and watching box sets and, you know, doing, looking at various things on the internet for, you know, their their pleasure. Right. You realise that it's a huge part of our lives, but um, we're always somehow fighting for our existence. Mm. It's very strange. That's a really good point, especially right now, because if we didn't have the internet, if we, there weren't places where we could stream things or be inspired by what other people are doing, it would make this period really, really difficult, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so I, I wrote down some notes here. Just want to like quickly recap and make sure I got it right. I think what you're talking about is the future is, needs to be more flexible. We need to adapt to what's going on. You, you mentioned startups a lot because they're probably on the edge of like always figuring out the new, the next, and that perhaps in creating maybe shorter periods of commitment that we are going to meet them with their needs. And maybe this is a way for us to look at things. Uh, there seems to be this theme of sharing and in, in cooperative space so that we all don't have to own the one piece of equipment that we use every once in a while. And that could that could drastically improve uh, consumption and pollution yeah. and trash and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And, and so it feels like as with social media, things are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Like uh, you would normally read a long article. Now you're doing 138 character tweet and that maybe our physical reality may somehow echo that too, that we can get in, we can try something. <clears throat> more, more ideas are being tried, more ideas fail, but that's, that's probably where we need to be. But I think if you actually think about um, how to innovate, how to change, if we if we're mm-hmm. kind of laboured over things, it's hard to be super responsive. It's hard right. to kind of brainstorm and, and 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 roll with, you know, new ideas really quickly. So I think that um, that flexibility um, and variety mm-hmm. and a kind of support mechanism, whether it be by the state or um, whether it be one creative to another. Um, I, I think we need to strengthen what we're doing because, you know, a lot of what 
what we use, whether it be apps on phones or, you know, amazing things around our home are usually a, a kind of innovation that came from a startup not that many years ago. Right. I mean, we we have generations for whom there's been slight changes in technology and mm-hmm. in, in, in the way that they function. And now it's speeded up rapidly. And we won't and we won't enjoy that unless we support the creatives who are doing it. Yes. Uh, I, I read a, uh, a phrase somewhere and it went something like this. We are now living in a time of the fastest pace of change ever in the history of humankind. Simultaneously, this is the slowest, slowest it's ever going to be. Which is Absolutely. Like, wow. Yeah, it's scary, okay. isn't it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's crazy fast, but it's going to get faster. It's super interesting in terms of education mm-hmm. um, because both my children are in high school and they are getting pretty much the same education I got 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I felt it was reasonably irrelevant then. <laughs> oh and they goodness. sort of do seriously question it but I kind of love that they question it Mm -hmm. you know they actually sort of say you know how would I use this why would I why would I not use Google for this why would you know when do you ever handwrite anything mummy (laughs) 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 and and it's true Um, and then you know they'll be looking at me doing my accounts online Mm -hmm. or you know equivalent and they say why don't we learn to do stuff like that that looks really useful (laughs) or (laughs) really basic stuff um and things like cooking, they're really into cooking mm. um, because it's, you know, they can see it's useful and yet they spend their days doing things. They don't understand how it's useful to them because it isn't, you know, we should be embracing technology to educate people. And we mm. should be also understanding that they can use, you know, calculators now in a way that they've never had more access to calculators. So actually understanding how maths works it's possibly better than mm-hmm. under, you know, remembering how to do everything via mental arithmetic. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I think when it's it, the speed of change, establishments just absolutely have to keep up, mm. you know, legislation, schools, education, you know, looking at transportation and the way that we, you know, should be massively taxing um, the polluters more than we are. All of those things, um, they really need to change because we're changing as as a you know as a species so rapidly. Beautiful. Now you know there, there's something very um, calming about the way you say this because uh, normally when I say something like that, people get scared. But your energy is so good about this that things are changing and we need to adapt and we should start to question what we do as part of our routine or habit uh, because maybe they're not the best ways to do things moving forward absolutely but i think that that um you know i think change for change's sake Mm -hmm. is actually really rare and people that's what people are afraid of right um change usually happens because there's a need that Mm. um isn't being met um, and if we actually think about our needs being met, surely that's a positive thing. Yes. So I think it's that fear of change that, I don't know, came from, you know, the Luddites or whatever it was when technology first came in and everyone was smashing up the um, the factory um, cells and going back to the farm. I think we're no longer there. I think we absolutely appreciate now that some things, some change is um, we change in the wrong way and we end up probably not meeting that need or creating other problems 
as a consequence of the way that we meet the need. But if we assume that it's heading in the direction of meeting a need and we can regularly reassess it, then it has to be a positive thing. Mm. Thanks for saying that. And thanks for clarifying that, because some, sometimes it could sound like that, uh, how somebody might process that. Okay, wow. I probably could sit here and talk to you for another three hours, but I realized we're, we're, <laughs> we're almost out of time. It was really fun. I, I was a little nervous talking to you, I have to admit. Uh, okay, audience, I was nervous to talk to Hannah because she seems so smart and doing things that are just way beyond my scope of understanding. And somehow, I, I think I got a glimpse into like, I, I think I sort of understand a few things now. So Hannah, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Absolutely, my pleasure. And um, yeah, hopefully get to talk to you again soon. Yes. Now, if people want to look you up and, and kind of either uh, find out more about what it is that you're doing, how, how might they do that? We have a website which is beautifully only six letters long, which is hnna.co. My name is Hannah and you are listening to The Future. Thanks so much for joining us in this episode. If you're new to the future and want to know more about our educational mission, visit thefuture.com. You'll find more podcast episodes, hundreds of YouTube videos, and a growing collection of online courses and products covering design and business. Oh, and we spell the future with no E. The Future Podcast is hosted by Christo and produced by me, Greg Gunn. This episode was mixed and edited by Anthony Barrow with intro music by Adam Sanborn. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor and rate and review us on iTunes. It's a tremendous help in getting our message out there. And, you know, it lets us know what you like. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.